and welcome to the Emerging Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Felicity Fury. I'm joined here by my amazing co-host, Brett Bassett, and we have a fantastic guest joining us. And we are so delighted to have Simon Kustenmacher. Hopefully I got that one right, Simon, from our practices before. He's a rising star in the world of data management and insight, extremely important in our modern day world that we know the data and what it means. He's a demographer, media commentator, engaging speaker, business advisor and researcher, and he's established himself as a prominent figure in the industry. He co-founded the Demographics Group, a Melbourne-based firm that specialises in providing businesses with data-driven insights to help them make informed decisions. So hopefully he's going to help you make some informed decisions today and maybe some insights around if we can predict the future. And I know for myself, Simon, after reading some of your work, I was surprised that I fit into many of the categories of demographics and data that mentioned. I did think I was a bit special, but absolutely not. I had my babies at the years you predicted, 33 and 36, and I do live just outside a big city in the Sunshine Coast. So I'm keen to hear what other insights you have about my life as we have our discussion today. I thought where we could start is a bit of a, a broader kind of conversation around the, the demographics right now. And what are kind of the game changes or the big influences, impactful shifts that are happening right now for us in Australia and in our society? Well, if we just look at the current demographic profile, we see that the biggest, by far the biggest population cohort, the millennials, and they are, or just happened over the pandemic, finally are reaching the family formation stage of the life cycle. So millennials procrastinated, as you mentioned, you did yourself, for quite a while with having kids until their mid to late 30s. And it just happened to coincide with the start of the pandemic that millennials really had kids at scale. This meant millennials reached a new stage of the life cycle that changes a couple of behaviors. One of the behaviors that changes in the most obvious sense is that your small inner city hipster apartment becomes too small and you then want to move. You need to move to a three or four bedroom dwelling these dwellings aren't available in the inner city. They're not even available in the middle suburbs in you know, closer distance to the CBD because this is where your parents, your baby boomer parents, hog their three and four bedroom homes. They're not thinking of downsizing and then still alive. So they're not selling because of this. So ultimately the millennials have to skip the middle suburbs and move to the urban fringe or to regional Australia even. And that will continue for the next 13, 14 years. That's baked into the system, quite simple. So that's the big status quo. That's what the millennials do. And with new lifestyle changes, of course, you have the biggest consumer cohort in Australia wanting more stuff, wanting different stuff. You buy a home, you need to fill the home with stuff. So all of your um, all of your bed baths and beyonds, your barbecues galores, all of those shops will be doing just fine in the coming decade. They are wonderful places to be doing business with. And on on the other end of the of the spectrum, you have maybe well, we need to talk about the baby boomers and their role, half of the baby boomer population is already retired or of retirement age. And so that changes their behavior. And baby boomers also completely change the way that you retire because they don't retire in a sense, gold watch on a Friday, and then it's just years on end on the golf course. That's not the baby boomers. Lots of them have jobs in the knowledge economy, 
laptop-based jobs that can be done until old age. They sure your joints hurt and whatnot, but you can do your job. And so they slowly slide into retirement and they scale back their working hours, three days, two days per week, but they still stay connected. And so as long as they are connected to work, the reason to downsize is absolutely not a given for them because why bother? They live in a house that's in commutable distance. They, they're comfortable. Plus they're now having grandkids. So you need all of those spare bedrooms simply because you want uh, enough room to host your grandkids occasionally. So that's the baby boomers. But in 10 years time, even the youngest baby boomer will be of retirement age. They might still have seats on company boards. They might still have talkback radio shows. But the influence of the baby boomers is on the way out. And that's crucial because that changes the way you need to run your business and your organizations. The last baby boomer, when they will retire in about 10 years time or thereabouts, that's the last person in Australia who really cares about hierarchical structures leaving the workforce. You then have the leadership being hand, handed over to Gen Xers. That's the generation born in the 60s and 70s. Um, and those folks, they don't care so much about structure, about hierarchy. They care about structure probably, but not, not so much about this hierarchical mindset. So organizations that in 10 years time will still look like rigid structure hierarchical beasts uh, they will struggle to find staff they will be seen as dinosaurs and some of them might just you know follow the dinosaurs and die so that might be as dramatic as i'm seeing the future of certain organizations because a gen x leadership in 10 years time operating a workforce that is 75 percent millennial or gen z that'll be a whole different way of of working and it also will mean that as organizations, you need to change your management structures, your um, um, just team structures change more, more fluently. That means that management becomes more of a, of, a, of a skill, actually. You can't just simply fit into certain boxes anymore. So lots of very exciting changes, all but baked into the demographics. Maybe one more word about the, the demographic setup, because quite often people talk about the skills shortage. And why do we have a skills shortage? Ah, sure, it's the pandemic. Because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we reminded <laughs> international students and skilled migrants that no financial assistance was going to be extended to them. So they buggered off. So instead of taking in 200,000 migrants per year in the first year of the pandemic, we lost 90,000. That's the skills shortage. Yes, that's part of the skills shortage. But the skills shortage was always at least going to be really hard skills squeeze because you have the big baby boomer generation retiring. That's no problem. Old people always retired at some stage and a new generation enters the picture. Well, this time around, you have a big fat generation retiring and a small generation, Gen Z, entering the workforce. They're also, as there's more generation, they're entering the workforce with a bit of a delay because they're hyper, hyper educated. So they only enter the workforce after two degrees, really. Uh, so that's the problem. And is as if this wasn't enough of a problem, you have the biggest generation, the millennials, at the same time starting families. They're usually two-income households, meaning... Um, they both, at some stage, at least temporarily leave the workforce. Millennial women these days return to work at record pace and at record capacity. So they're doing their bit to, short, uh, to, to make the skills shortage go away. But 
there's just so many of them. And they will continue making babies as a cohort for the next 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Uh, so the skilled squeeze will be with us for a while. We can theoretically migrate our way out of this, uh, but probably not as much as people might think. What are our options? What can we do then if we've got this, this challenge? What, what advice would you have? Because you've described everyone in my family. My mum is uh, going to be working till she's 70. She's currently 65. My brother has two degrees. He's eight years younger than me, so he is in that generation below. Mm-hmm. He's left uni much later. And, you know, we're seeing that in the workforces, particularly in engineering, is there's this knowledge that people have had over decades is leaving. And even before COVID, we spoke about this skills shortage before COVID happened. And it's been so topical in our industry for quite some time. And I'm sure it affects other industries. What have you seen anything that's that's going to be a game changer or that, that could work well to address this challenge? Well, so there are a couple of ways of answering this question from a more generalized top-level perspective, you want to understand that, and I'm sure in in, in any kind of STEM-related industry, these fears don't exist as much, but automation, AI, algorithms, robots, they are our friends. They will help us to weather this storm. Um, They will not lead to mass unemployment and angry hordes roaming the streets in Australia. I, I really don't see that happening. I'm much more optimistic than most people because I've seen enough transitions. Just look at secretaries. If you look at the age profile of secretaries in Australia, there are no secretaries under the age of 50 in Australia because we made this job superfluous. Bosses learned how to type. Outlook made it easy to book meetings and flights can easily be booked by an app. So who cares about angry secretaries? We just made them superfluous. But if this story is correct, where are the hordes of angry secretaries roaming the streets? They're nowhere to be seen because the narrative is total nonsense. Uh, what happened is that the profession of secretaries collectively upskilled and reinvented, rebranded itself. Organizations don't have secretaries anymore. They have personal assistants, executive assistants, office managers. We know that these are the same cohort that might have been secretaries in another scenario because all of these four jobs are 99% occupied by women. Uh, And the good news is these new professions take on more responsibilities within the office. Um, They are more highly skilled and they're operating more complex systems. And most importantly, they're paid better. So once again, this became uh, a positive thing because to misquote Jurassic Park here, work finds a way to fill your day, that is. Even if a couple of your tasks get automated via AI, uh, then there is enough work out there for this worker to be doing this. And essentially, the nature of work as certain tasks get handed over to AI, um, the stuff that gets stuck or stays with the individual worker is interpersonal in nature. So those interpersonal skills of communicating between humans, of getting the idea that one human has into the brain of another human, these tasks, um, they will continue to be crucial. They will be make it or break it career skills. In a, in a tech-heavy world, it is less the tech skills rather than the interpersonal skills that set you apart. In that sense, if you are really into tech, push your kids in school, push them to be part of the theater, of the drama class. Of course, they need to learn a bit of programming, a bit of math doesn't hurt, but um, interpersonal stuff is where those where you really shine in a techie world, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. And totally agree. I, I feel like I thought I was a bit of an odd engineer because I wasn't, I could do the maths and, and the science skills, but I found I had some good communication skills. And I thought often in engineering, I'd have to wait my turn to be a leader and prove those technical skills t- to get into that leadership position. But I think we're seeing now with the complex projects we have and the, the big systems approach that we have to take with these projects, those skills coming to the fore. And if you have a good idea, but you can't communicate it, then there's no point even having that idea. And I think that's so relevant for the engineering workforce in particular. Exactly. And then you realize also as from a leader's perspective, you understand how important it is to get these ideas that some engineers might have in their little brains, uh, but maybe they don't have the communication skills. Then you need to facilitate this. So you need to uh, encourage this. You need to create a work environment where people are feeling empowered, where they feel free and safe to share their ideas. That's a harder uh, thing to, to train people, to encourage people to. It's, it's easy in a sense to send people on a bit of a technical training course and uh, they, they learn a new software package, uh, whatever. That's easy enough. But what we are talking about here is a bit of a mindset shift and that is much, or cultural shift, and that's much, much harder um, to, to push through. And I think leaders taking that responsibility of you can't just go, oh, well, no one gave me those ideas. You go, well, you've got this team. It's, it's diverse. It's different from you. How do you get those skills out of it and actually really putting that ownership on the leader? And, and, and to do that becomes even more important now that we will be working with more dispersed, geographically dispersed teams more frequently. More and more time will be spent working from home. So that means as a leader, you need to make sure that you bring people together at least occasionally, but in a meaningful way. The dumbest thing you can do is just to say, "Ah, everybody has to be in the office every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's dumb. That's not helping work. You want to view work as what's best for work. Of course, the evil boss wants to have everyone under their control. uh, And the lazy worker wants to sit at home in their boxer shorts or draggy pants working. That's the cliche. If you take the perspective of work, you want to understand that certain tasks are better done in peace and quiet. Writing emails, programming, you know, lots of those software tasks, they're just angrily yelling at your GIS software package or, or, or CAT software, whatever you use, that might make you mad, but you best do this in peace and quiet. But there are other tasks that are best done in the office. And ideally as a manager, you coordinate your team that you get some it's not perfectly possible but to get people into the office when there's a lot of interpersonal creative collaborative work done do that means more management more responsibilities for a leader just more work ultimately if you do it this way nobody will be resentful of having to come to an office which is a big risk that you stand with your workforce these days Absolutely. There's a bit of expectation there around, well, it worked in COVID. Why can't it work again? And I think with that millennial generation in particular who are having families, you know, we're so grateful we've had time at home with our young children because we can work from home. We can work flexibly and that's really worked for us. And I definitely don't want to give that up. I want to hold on to that. Exactly. Maybe a bit of a problematic metaphor here would be the US gun rights, where once you granted the right, to a people, whatever the right is, it's really hard to take this right back. And millennials were granted the right to work from home. That kind of worked for them. They were prepared for this. They're techie generation. 
how they want to continue working from home. Plus, millennials are also old enough to not really be disadvantaged by working from home. The losers in the working from home organization are early career professionals because they benefit by going to the office, working long hours and constantly soaking up skills and knowledge from the older, more experienced workers. And the young people still go to the office because they live in noisy share houses, um, but they go to the office and hardly anyone is there. So, so that's a bit problematic. So once again, as a leader, that means you need to proactively facilitate the, the knowledge transfer between your staff, because that is actually at risk of being missed otherwise. So you want to make sure that there are skills sharing lunches, you buy lunch, you know, whatever, the young people will appreciate it. Doesn't cost anything on your budget, bit of bloody pizza, whatever you order. That's worth it. And so there's somebody, you know, find out the best Excel guru. He teaches everyone the 12 most important Excel formulas or whatever it is. And you want to do this regularly, creates team building opportunities, but also facilitates this knowledge transfer. And that's crucial because you are robbing your young talent of the learning um, opportunities. And that said, the millennials, as you mentioned, as, as when I'm a dad of a toddler as well, you just want to spend as much time at home as possible. And you are starting to grow resentful of a commute. Plus, as a generation, millennials did not just move uh, to the middle suburbs, where they have a relatively short commute, but they moved to the fringe or to the regions. So the commute is even longer, even more resentful. So that's that's something that you will need to face as a leader. You need to come up with a clear strategy. And the dumbest things that I hear is just simple stereotypes of saying, these are lazy folks that just want the best for them. They don't care about the organization. It's like, mate, just face the music. And this is a new working environment. And as a capable leader, you're adjusting to this new environment, whether you like it or not. Also, for the next decade or so, in not all that many professions, the organizations, they're not in the driver's seat anymore. The skill squeeze will be with us. If you want to retain talent and you better proactively work on retaining talent, that's part of the issue that you have to face, this working from home stuff. So deal with it. Yeah. There, there's as a I, um, Go ahead, Brett. Sorry, I was... Sorry, sorry, team. As a, as a Gen Xer who's had to really embrace the, the technological change, I mean, if I go back to when I first joined the workforce many, many years ago, I remember I used to be a policeman, Simon, and the first time I ever actually touched a computer was actually when I was in, in the workforce already, you know, and I remember the first time I had to do something to type something out, it was on, a, it was on a, an actual typewriter, really, really strange. Right? We then go back to where we are right now, and I actually, I work from home very, very regularly. I see it as a really important way to set the expectation across the organisation. I also see it as a really important way, as you were talking, Simon, when I need to get really, really into the detail and really structured, having that, that time just to be present at home, just doing all the really important detailed stuff, I, I use it for exactly that. Yeah. And I might just throw this comment or thought out there as well. What do people think, you know, as, as we work from home, there is more of a almost like an intrusion into the personal space at home? How are people, or, or Simon, what are you seeing around the interactions between the personal versus the, um, the workspace, like you see on YouTube, people having oh. funny examples where their kids run in and all that type of stuff. 
what are your thoughts about about is that a good thing for you know for society or not based on on your experience yeah couple of ways of answering this one way is i just find by looking at other people's living rooms or offices over the years you understand that they're human you understand that they are person in their own right other than um, this just this professional facade that you might be talking with so it uh, humanizes um, the world of work i think that's a positive story I think by now nobody is angry, upset when a cat or a kid walks into a Zoom call. I think that's that's a yesteryear kind of kind of issue. The other thing to to take into account here is, well, the whole Zoom culture. What does it do for for an organization? Changes the organizational expectations of what you do. It leads to certain pressures, of course. Um, if you, for example, live in a in a bit of a rowdy share house as a young professional, um, you better like do I want to show my living room? And this is when blurred backgrounds quite quickly entered the realm because you it's a bit of a privacy screen that worked well. And of course, all of this also has a personal meaning, a typology element to it, since there's a spectrum that people fall fall into. There are certain people that want the spectrum goes from separators to integrators. I'm an integrator. I like to work from home uh, because I jump from uh, doing a bit of work to playing with a toddler, to doing the dishes, to doing work. It's all back and forth. It's really messy and I don't care. I enjoy it. I have a concentration span that allows me to jump between things. But how long can I concentrate on a single thing? Who knows? Um, that's me. On the other end, the separators, these are people that want an extremely clear cut um, between private and work life. My wife falls into this. She looks at how I work and it drives her mad. She gets panic attacks if she, if she looks at my, my work. It's like, how the hell can you live like this? That's not, that's not good. And this is just a typology. Neither of those things are good or bad. And few people fall on that extreme ends of the spectrum as my wife and I do. But um, Sometimes it is like this. And so you, when you take all of those things into account, you want to remember somebody is talking about working from home. Where might this person fall onto the spectrum? And might this person uh, view the whole world just through their lens as an extreme separator or an extreme integrator? The whole new world of work is, of course, much more comfortable for the integrators than it is for the separators. It's those separators that really have a bit of an uphill battle here and they need to change and this is why we try to you know understand the personal preferences when we force certain kind of policies on people you know that you kind of know how certain people react based on their stock standard work preferences that's really fascinating i was thinking just as you were talking there simon from an industrial perspective that's a really interesting way to look at you know the workforce through typology so give me i'll give you an example a lot of organizations have core hours you know, those core hours actually may not actually be the best way for somebody, if they're an integrator, if I remember the correct terminology, to actually operate. But then if you look at the other end, then there's a workplace health and safety perspective as well. You know, we need to make sure that as leaders that we're giving everybody the safe work environment, et cetera. And I know that there are a number of companies, for example, who don't allow emails to be sent after a certain period of time. As this sort of all unfolds, you know, over the next number of years, et cetera, I dare say that leaders 
are going to need to be really equipped with the right way to support the different typologies that you're referring to. Absolutely. And it makes it makes management more complex. That's true. So things become more complex. But overall, humanity, the world of work, absolutely everything always moves upwards towards more complexity. Good news is that we become more and more educated, more and more skilled as humans as well to actually deal with ever increased levels of complexity. Um, you'll see more and more people not thinking in either or or in black and white images or, or metaphors, uh, but they are trying to understand both sides of the coin. They're not going to view themselves as either left or right on the political spectrum. They're going to see themselves as more complex beings viewing the world through a more compact lens. And that's wonderful because we definitely need this. These are systemic thinkers and the major issues that we face as a, as a planet, as a community, they are systemic in nature. Climate change, even the housing crisis, these are systemic issues. So you need a systemic solution. And just blaming politician here or there, it's just dumb. It doesn't do anything. It's just a simplistic narrative. And I really hope that we slowly overcome these kind of metaphors to always ask ourselves when we analyze any kind of situation, are we doing, is my analysis doing justice to the complexity of this situation? And if your answer is ever yes, you know that you're wrong. You will only ever, you know, come close to really understanding the full complexity of an issue because you can't even possibly take up so many perspectives that you really understand absolute every aspect of a thing that you are working on or living through or whatever it is. So there's a bit of respect of the complexity of life that hopefully um, moves along here. I'll tell all my engineering friends, Simon, I think I do have a tendency to think black and white, but we are working in this complex system approach. And I wanted to just shift gears a bit in the conversation. And yesterday was International Women's Day and you sort of touched on you know, women are having their children a later stage. And often if you look in the, the STEM fields and in engineering, in engineering it's just 13% of engineers are women, it's a small number. It'd be awesome to increase that. Maybe that could fill the skills shortage. It's often touted as a solution to this challenge. What are you seeing? What kind of barriers are you seeing for women in the workforce? Or is that a viable solution given that we've got millennials who you know, might have a decade or 15 years experience now having children? Can you talk a bit more about yeah. Exclusively about engineering or a broader perspective? Both would be great, yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing now women being or entering the workforce at record rates. So we're also seeing these the pay gap being almost non-existent until women become moms. That's a positive, that's a positive story in many professions, very much differs from profession to profession, but there are heaps of examples where the skill gap is almost non-existence until then the mom penalty comes in and you say well how do we solve with this because essentially you take out a worker for a couple of years whatever it is from the workforce and they say well if we pay by experience how do we what do we do here so that hasn't been solved yet as a society what do we do before that we say well gender equality is achieved to a certain degree there that's positive we also see that women are outperforming men on every level of education. Primary, secondary, tertiary, women get higher grades and they graduate at higher rates. 
So that would suggest, quite frankly, if women are more educated and the best indicator for future pay in Australia is the level of education, that we will more and more um, reach a world where the higher earner, higher earning partner within a couple is the woman. That then puts a price on the male ego. Once, of course, you know, being pregnant, the first couple of months of raising a baby, definitely mom's job because that's pure biology at work. But after that, there is a cultural element deciding who does what. And in an environment, in, in a scenario where the woman earns 20,000 bucks more than the man, then the price of the male ego is 20,000 bucks. Do we collectively take home $20,000 less or am I staying at home and mom does this or whatever? So there's a lot of rejiggling happening in terms of the social contract. The social, it's not a social contract. It's really just the contract between the two partners because who cares about society? You have to manage your own life. You have to manage your own family and you need to know what you want to do. And it's important that we don't fall into simplistic narratives where we're saying, how should you manage your family? Well, it is always up to the individuals. We just want to create an environment where people have all the choice uh, to act in a certain way that is best for them and that is best for the couple as a collective or the family as a collective. And so we don't want to move into an extreme where you, where you judge a mom for taking time off work to focus on the family, because that's the, that's the other risk that we're seeing. And I think at the moment we're at a scenario we haven't achieved either. So we're in a bit of a stupid limbo period because what's the, what's the ideal way for a woman to act according to kids? Well, if you don't have kids, it's like, ah, oh, you're, you're missing out on the most important experience of being a woman. So that's not good. Um, if you focus on kids, you're just like, well, what are you doing? You're just, you know, supporting the patriarchy. We've done all this feminist work for ages and you're just doing nothing. Um, if you do a halfway approach something in between people go like well she can't even decide whatever it is so there's no clear narrative out there that's way where you can at least at the end pat yourself on the back and go like look at this i'm doing the thing that everybody thinks is good because we are still extremely judgy uh, in australia or in the world really what people do and how people should be doing thing and things and usually it's just a version of oh my god look at this person this person is not acting in the exact same way as i would act and that's just dumb. That's once again, viewing the world in not a too complex way, just viewing the world through your very own perspective. And that's difficult. So there's, there's that question. And I think we're going to make heaps of social progress in this. Because once again, this is just demographic speaking, because we now have another 14, 15 years worth of millennial women having babies, rejiggling the social contract. That happens one pregnancy at a time. Uh, this is uh, quite a slow slog. It's hard for the individual couples who need to make this out, hard for the individual woman. But as a society, we're going to make heaps of progress. If you look back to 2023 in 10, 15 years, you go, oh my Lord, we've, we've moved ages, miles. We've done fantastic progress. So I'm convinced that this is going to happen. I'm even convinced that by the end of the decade, we will have completely closed the gender pay gap. What I'm meaning here is there's no way that under a leadership that in 10 years time will be completely Gen X and millennial and the workforce will be 75% millennial and Gen Z, that in that environment, you get away with paying men and women different dollars for the same work. 
It's a ludicrous assumption that this will continue to be okay. So this will be fixed. Um, Whatever, of course, there's a legal asterisk to this comment. Uh, I'm not talking about the gender income gap. The gender income gap is where industries that are dominated by women aren't earning any money. Education, care jobs. Should have told the story the other way around huh? to end on a high. But uh, that's that's a much harder thing to fix because ultimately you need, as a society, you need to decide that you want to pay more money for a service. And that's that's a hard ask for society. So as long as you get away with underpaying female-dominated industries, this will continue, period. So changing that narrative is much, much harder than making sure that engineering grads, male or female, the same dollars and have the same promotion opportunities. That is, in a sense, easy because you just need to make sure that you have some sort of mechanism in place that judges the quality of work. Easy. Once you have this solved, fine. How do you make sure that caretakers, that teachers earn more money. That's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. So therefore, this will take much longer if we ever fix it. Simon, what... Like that. Oh, sorry, where you go? Sorry, sorry for listening. Simon, what, what countries in your experience closer to getting to that end point of where we should be? Got any examples? Well, so there is never an end point. So human, human development is always open-ended. This is an upward spiral. We will constantly move upwards and develop. There will never be an end of human development. So, and society changes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that won't change. Which countries are ahead? Well, you can look at simple measures in terms of like parental leave policies. That is a bit helpful. That's probably one of the best things you can do. Other than that, universal free childcare is absolutely crucial. So just look at countries who are doing that. That's fair enough. Then, and uh, we, we will soon be at a point where gender equality makes so much progress that we need to say, okay, so when do we say, and this is not now, but when you say, okay, when do we have enough? Because once you reach um, actual equality or close enough to equality, let's call it plus minus 5%, you need to say, we then need to roll back any kind of quota system that we have. And we might just need to trust that our system and our collective mindset is now stable enough uh, to function into the future. So in a sense, you need to already prepare for future success by saying, what does success actually look like? And when are we willing to roll back any kind of regulation that we might put into place? So that is a bizarre, positive problem to have. Sometimes might feel a bit confrontational, but it was also, I find, a very hopeful thing of saying, no, no, there is actually... Those problems are solvable. So we just need to decide what it's like a project. What does the when do we close a project, a consulting project? When is it done? When do we send it off? And so forth. That's such a great perspective. And I can relate to everything you're saying around the the gender pay gap. And I think beginning of my career, I was actually paid more than my male colleagues by a couple of grand when I was a graduate, which was really interesting as an engineer. And you know, myself, I've got a seven-week-old baby. So I feel like that conversation is really real around when, you know, do I take time off? What do I do? And I gave a speech last week and I was thought, oh, should I say I have a six-week-old baby? And I also didn't want to make people feel guilty about it of yeah. what you should do or shouldn't do. So I feel like there is a lot of that pressure. And one of the unexpected things that happened we had our first baby was my husband's perspective because he was super open to 
taking the baby, doing all these things. And I was like, you're doing too much. And he said, no, I'm doing the right amount. I'm, I'm sharing this with you. And as someone who's really passionate about gender equality, I surprised myself in my own biases that I already had going into it. So I think a lot of young men and, and men in, in leadership roles are also changing their perspective. And I love what you said around how do we prepare now for that future and that success in the future? Because I don't think anyone's talking about that. They're still talking about the problem. And I think that's what frustrates a lot of people about things like International Women's Day is just talking about those yeah. challenges. Exactly. And you need to uh, you need to prepare for this because you want ultimate success. And so you need to, as you're on the road to success, you want to appreciate that you moved into the right way. So the momentum is always super important. When you're on a weight loss journey, you shouldn't beat yourself up that you're still weighing too much. That's silly. You should say, I lost a couple of pounds. That's nice. So, so well done. So we just need to continue this momentum and just establish a couple of, of ground rules. Uh, and then things are moving along nicely. So these are the kind of things that I want people to, to think about and to prepare for, because ultimately all of those things very much possible and certain kind of narratives must fall away over time because this whole idea of saying yeah you need to go back to work and you just you put a hyper focus on work it devalues family and in a sense it makes it very hard for men to actually focus on family as well or to to give up a bit of work time to give it to family time because this narrative the, the public narrative funnily enough always says Yes, family is the most important thing. But then the narrative kind of says work is more important. You, know, you that, only that, have... That's when you need leaders to step up. Sorry, Simon. That's when you yeah. need leaders to step up of both, you know, of any gender. That's when you need them to say, you know what, I'm going home today and I'm going to go and take my son or my daughter or whatever to their sporting event or something along those lines. And, you know, there's this, this phenomenon that I've sort of heard, heard about called leaving loudly, right? And that's where you've got the leader that says, I'm going to go and do this. Now, I, I've done that for years. I'm a big believer that, you know, you've got to demonstrate through your actions. You've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. So I'm a big believer that as a leader, you have to actually do the stuff that you want people to feel comfortable doing themselves. So leadership is a lot like parenting. You can talk all, all you want. Ultimately, kids only listen to what you do, not what you say. So. Yeah. You know, as a, to be a good parent, all you need to do is become a better human. How hard can that be? And uh, you need to do the same as a leader, really. It's a lot of work, relatively easy, <laughs> but a lot of work. That'd be nice if I could just say to my two-year-old, we'll do it right. That would be, that would be the dream. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is going to have people not be successful in this, this, you know, in the next decade? Is it going to be ignoring the, you know, flexible work arrangements or people working regionally what are kind of yeah I think I really think that with just a simple example chat GPT game changer even for us in our business we've sped up so much about processes and I think organizations aren't using this then there's going to be a real challenge for them similar similar narrative as there was with any kind of uptick there were organizations that fought any digitalization early on that fought even the move to computers and that will make you a legate so you're always at the risk of, of falling behind if you don't go with the times uh, first mover advantage is that needed probably not for most people jet gbt for example that's a technology all these language models that are currently in its infancy and so we now learn how to use them and they're 
incredibly vague compared to what they will be in a couple of years. So you need to kind of learn it, but don't stress out about it at the moment, I think. But think, see through the opportunities. You see that there are all of a sudden new leaders emerging. Yeah, so there will be new tech billionaire dudes who just done this like language learning stuff and, you know, they're selling it already for billions to the big players. That's fine. So that's a new technology. We learn how to use it for better or worse. That's good. Um, but again, when we go back to, to the earlier point about how important interpersonal tasks are, interpersonal skills, because it's we all played with JetGBT and we realized lots of this writing is pretty quick and it answers pretty complex questions. Um, do I trust it just yet? Absolutely not. That'd be a bit naive at this stage because the further you go down into your extreme subject matter expertise, you realize weaknesses. They're not obvious. They're definitely good enough to do a stupid school essay or, or uni essay. Fair enough. But if your life depends on it, if your professional um, uh, branding depends on it that's a bit risque at the moment <laughs> so we find our way through this and the risk is always to to stick with the ways that you've always done things it's it's very cliche but the world is changing you are changing you want to adopt to it and change isn't a bad thing change can be it's just annoying of course but it's to be done learning a new thing is just annoying you just want to just comfortably cruise along, <laughs> to, to be honest. Uh, but you need to you need to adjust. And you see this whenever you learn a new thing. I, the other day, learned TikTok. I was like, yeah, you have to be on TikTok. You have to learn this. This is, they'll love you for me. I haven't even gone there yet. I'm like, no, TikTok, I'm just going to leave it. And it's utterly confusing. Like any new piece of software, it is confusing at the beginning and it makes no sense whatsoever. But after a while, you learn to use it and, and you learn to use it in a way that is useful for you. I'm not telling anyone to go into TikTok. Stay away as much as you humanly can from social media. It's good for, unless you use it professionally and it makes you money, then that's good. But you see, you want to learn new tools. You want to reinvent the way that you do work. And don't be afraid. I think that's for a leader. That's also an important thing. And you always want to remind yourself to, to zoom out a bit, to, uh, to, uh, to view yourself hovering a bit above things, to, to gain a bit of perspective. That's the whole strategy stuff of leadership, where you actually see the bigger picture. And well, at the moment, you know, we see in Australia, how can we possibly get along? Record low unemployment, no workers. Material costs are going down now, but they're still high, uh, depending on which industry you're at. And uh, the, the war in, in the Ukraine and the trade war between China and the US is kind of dooming as I go. So interest rates, it's just horrible. And you want to zoom out and always remind yourself of the basics. Will the business model of Australia continue to operate into the future? Yes. We stick stuff out of the ground. We grow stuff on the ground. We sell it to the world. Bit of tourism bit of international education that's how we make money will there be a future demand for this absolutely this is not going to slow down in the next hundred years so the business model is safe so at least you're in the right country and then you want to go back to your industry and rethink how is your industry doing what should we be offering and ultimately you should actually in australia arrive at some sort of conclusion about things are all right here yeah now the momentum is maybe moving a bit into the uh, direction that you don't like to see that's a bit frustrating fair enough but ultimately, yeah, she'll be right, <laughs> to be honest. As you were talking, Simon, I was sort of thinking over the last three podcasts, 
Felicity and I have been talking about the role of a leader and actually growing leaders, you know, working hard with teams, embracing change, etc. I was sort of thinking that now is a fantastic time for somebody who's a millennial or somebody who's got a new technology type bent to actually, you know, demonstrate or step up and actually help support a new way of thinking around all of these areas, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And this is particular. this is going out to the younger you are, the more I implore you to take this seriously, is I feel that there is an absolute lack of optimism among young people. It's very easy to fall into a dystopian view of the world. We're saying the planet is heating up, everything is getting more terrible. The, the view where you view the whole of human existence as nothing but a cancer on the planet. What kind of where you reduce absolutely everything to its carbon footprint? Yes, that's all real. Climate change is absolutely real, needs to be slowly stopped. But if you reduce your own existence on the CO2 footprint that you have, that's not, a, that's not an optimistic, positive outlook of the world. No, I read a book recently about the skyscraper, skyscraper race in 1920s New York. And this is the, the roaring 20s, the, the the absolute go-get-it attitude that young folks had back in the day. You want this, you want to install this attitude into the young. And demographically speaking, this is an awesome year to be a young person. If you were born in the year 2000, congratulations. You are now 22, three really. You're entering the world at record low rates of unemployment. There's very few of your cohort around. Everybody wants you. You can charge whatever the hell you want on the labor market. There is new technology up there. You still more capable to actually embrace all of this new technology and make, make a name for yourself in this. Um, the world is actually your oyster. Yes, there are crusted, rigid organizations and structures there that, that are annoying to navigate, but this is a great a great environment to be to be starting a business in. If you are into any kind of trade or construction job, you will be forever in high demand. Just make sure that you don't work for somebody. Make sure that you become your independent contractor. That statistically speaking gives you a 27% pay rise as a tradie in Australia. Uh, and you have a marvelous career ahead of yourselves. So, so don't be all that disappointed. Remember that ultimately human development moves upwards. Humans become more complex thinkers. Complex thinkers. It sounds like a lie uh, these days, but the world is becoming more peaceful. There are fewer wars than there were before. So ultimately we are moving in the right directions. And um, green technology, if we're talking about climate change, are making absolute rapid increases, improvements, that all those things point into the right direction. You can be part of this. And if you fall into the trap of a very concerned, dystopian view, then all you do is protest. You're not, you're not changing anything. We want young workers to actually become engineers, to go, okay, how do we improve the technologies that we are using? This is changing the world, not super gluing yourself to some some. Dutch artwork or anything. That's not that's not changing things. So it is this extreme sense of optimism of I can do it, go get it attitude that the young people should have. Also, they are hyper, hyper educated. They are much smarter than you or I were at, at that age. So it's the words theirs to take. And a the leader's job is to make sure that they stay focused on the good, right? And 
Felicity, I'll hand over to you in a second. I mean, it's funny, I was having a conversation with somebody this morning and it was a really great conversation about, you know, how, how they're performing, et cetera. And, and it's quite fascinating. In my experience as a leader, what, what, what people often want to do is they want to talk about the negative. They don't want to talk about the positives either in themselves or in an organisation. So, Simon, as you were talking, the first thing that kept coming to my mind is we've always got to talk about the positives. Talk about the positives. Yes, there are developmental areas, but never, ever forget about the positives. Yeah, I love that. And I was just thinking as well as you're talking, Simon, it wouldn't be awesome if there was newspaper articles like, amazing, we have an infrastructure boom, boom, what an opportunity. This is fantastic. And we so easily go into the negative and for so many years I've been talking about these infrastructure booms and you see those graphs with all the construction that's happening in our major cities. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've got the Olympics coming up in Brisbane. We've got even before the Olympics, I heard recently that the government's pushing to get um, the health projects happening before the Olympic boom to kind of schedule all of that work. And you're right, it's such an opportunity for engineering, for companies, but we hear a lot of this negative talk about the labour skills shortage. What are the positives that are coming out of this boom at the moment? If I'm looking at Southeast Queensland and I'm zooming out, I'm saying what's possible there is that Southeast Queensland is the only region in Australia that stands a fighting chance um, to get the infrastructure that it needs. What I mean by this is a city like Melbourne, for example, uh, the West, Western Melbourne grew at a fast, grew its population base at a much faster rate than its infrastructure. So that's problematic. That sucks for all the people that moved there that thought there was going to be more infrastructure. But it also means now that you created infrastructure backlog. So you can't possibly now build infrastructure into those greenfield sites in the east and in the north that you know are going to be just as bad as the west very soon. You can't possibly do this because the the voters would kill you. The West voters of the West, they would kill you and the booth. So you don't don't do it. So you play it, you see build expensive infrastructure after the fact in there. You can't, you have limited funding, you can't do the other thing. You only build infrastructure there when there are enough voters demanding it. That's annoying. It's really painful to see Southeast Queensland. Along come the Olympic Games. Along comes a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get the infrastructure funding that you need. This is the only region in Australia that could get the relevant infrastructure. Marvellous. So this means uh, if this region is fully focused, you know, a couple of problems there, the GABA cost blowout from a couple of days ago, that's not a good news story. But if you deliver infrastructure that is largely focused on improving the connectivity between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast, and even up to Toowoomba, you create a conurbation, an urban mass that is a better connected, significantly better connected than Melbourne or Sydney. This region as a whole has three international airports, one regional airport in Toowoomba, a dream. This is really, there's an opportunity of turning Greater Brisbane, Southeast Queensland, whatever you want to call it, into a premier global city. This is an awesome opportunity. This improves the opportunities for, for everyone involved. So that's how you could view a region. Or you could say, bloody hell, this roadway is closed because those bastards are building something again. That's not what is what is the worldview that you want to have there? And if you see those opportunities emerge, you could become part of this. Or you could hate it and fight an uphill battle because this is coming and it is needed. So, you know, there's sounds, a bit of a... Sounds glass half full to me. <laughs> I reckon. 
I like it. Well, someone in the Sunshine Coast, I'm hoping they duplicate the line. There's uh, Olympic stuff happening down the road from from me. So I'm hoping that we get some advantages to that. But I've never thought about from that perspective. I've lived in both Sydney and Melbourne and it is challenging to travel around. I actually worked on the Westgate Tunnel Project when I was living in Melbourne. So I, I know it very well and some of the challenges that we're facing. We're almost at time. Brett, did you have any final questions? I feel like I could speak to you all day, Simon. It's been absolutely fascinating. I did have a hipster apartment on Burke Street in Melbourne, so I did see all the protesters <laughs> and all the young people. So I'm still fitting your mould to a T. Brett, did you have any final questions? I think the final question I've got is, as a Gen Xer, Simon, you know, as the older one here, am I, am I redundant or am I the dying dinosaur? Not at all. Uh, Brett, you are actually part. This is your decade as a Gen Xer. You heard I've got it here 10 first. Seven. <laughs> because there is a level of seniority built into leadership positions uh, in Australia. You become prime minister at 54. You become CEO at 52 in Australia. So that means that this small Gen X cohort that, you know, the forgotten generation always feels left out because they're such a tiny generation. This is your decade. You move into the top leadership positions. This means the Gen X values, they get amplified in this decade. And of course, a couple of the Gen X values, very pragmatic generation. So we will be more fact-driven leadership decision makers. That's nice. Gender equality. Gen X was the first generation who saw their moms enter the workforce at scale. So they're the first generation who thinks it's normal for women to be part of the workforce. Therefore, they will really improve any kind of gender issue. They're also the first generation uh, that really care about work-life balance. So that'll be improved because they saw both parents go to work, work themselves to death. They were called the latchkey generation. Gen X uh, came home to an empty home and they figured there must be a better way. And they really did. They really focused on work-life balance. Gen X men are the only cohort in all of Australia that are less likely to be an entrepreneur than you would statistically expect them to be. And that's because the one thing you don't get as an entrepreneur is time with your family. And as a group, they're not willing to take this risk. So this is your decade. More and more great positions are being handballed to you. I'm most certain, Brett. I'm looking forward to being able to achieve everything you've just said, Simon. Thank you. So it sounds like the next next decade has opportunities for every generation. So no matter where you're at, what you fit into, there's there's something for everyone. I love that we're ending on a positive and with something optimistic. I think it's an awesome time, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're working in construction or any industry. And how lucky are we that we get to live in this amazing country called Australia and soak up all of this. It's absolutely fantastic. So thanks so much for being here as our guest, Simon. Uh, my brain is just thinking of even more questions for you. So where can people hit you up or find out more if they want to get in touch with you best way is always linkedin this is where i'm sharing my little demographic tidbits every every day other than this i run a very active twitter account where i'm sharing nothing but maps and data all day so if you're really into your data then come over to twitter as well i love it i love some numbers you'll definitely get me as a new twitter follower thank you so much and thanks for your great questions as always brett loved it and that's a wrap for this episode of emerging excellence thanks